Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Bert and uh, Robin, for a great job as always. Hope you had all a great Christmas. Happy New Year. And I was just telling, talking to Martha and uh, Sarah about what happened in 2023. Just started, it seemed, and now it's gone. And this is what happens when you get on the back nine. It goes a little faster. And uh, But uh, I hope you had a great, a safe Christmas, a, a fun one. And uh, so uh, good to see you. Could you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to be uh, observing the Lord's Supper today. Remember, we bumped it down to the end of the month. So we'll be doing that at the end of the second session today. And uh, today, as you can see on the board in the first session, we'll be noting uh, Habakkuk 3, 4, which teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ will manifest some of his power at his second advent. And in the second session, we'll be looking at Habakkuk 3, 5, which teaches us that plague goes before the Lord at his second advent and pestilence follows at his feet. So uh, this uh, is the divine warrior psalm section of uh, Habakkuk, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's lyrics to a song, in other words. We don't know what the music is. It's been lost in his, to history. But we do know the lyrics, and it is a psalm. It's lyrics to a song, and we call it the Divine Warrior Psalm. And, of course, in Scripture, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, the unique theanthropic person of history, the God-man, is the greatest warrior of all time. And uh, he'll manifest that at his second advent when he establishes the kingdom here on earth, his millennial reign, and imprisons Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years, and also uh, de defeats and kills Antichrist and the false prophet, and destroys the tribulational armies that'll be waging war against him uh, at his second advent. Of course, remember, the church comes back uh, with Jesus Christ. So this divine warrior psalm is, uh, as we'll see, not as, and we, we looked at this in great detail, we looked at the different approaches to this passage in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15, that uh, some consider it as uh, historical, to fill, uh, uh, been filled in history, and also some, uh, like myself, believe it's also prophetic. And so there's a little bit of both, primarily prophetic, and we gave our reasons why that is. We devoted one class to, uh, to doing that. And so uh, this is, uh, so we're going to talk a lot in this, in this uh, Divine Warrior Psalm, uh, the, uh, a lot about the tribulation period and the second advent to Christ. When, uh, and that is what we'll be concentrating on today, the second advent of Jesus Christ, when he returns to this earth bodily to establish the kingdom on earth. It's different from the rapture, as we've been pointing out, and I'll continue to do so, because some people get the, the rapture and the second advent confused, but there are distinctions. If you look at the passages that teach on the rapture and the second advent, if you compare them, there are definitely distinctions that you can see. So, <clears throat> without further ado... Let's take a moment of silent prayer, as is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, to determine if we're in fellowship with God, because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, of course, according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit, who speaks to us through the scriptures which he's inspired, and that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. <clears throat>
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another beautiful day here in Alabama, another day to experience creation and fellowship with you and your Son and the Holy Spirit and other like-minded believers. And we thank you for everyone that is here assembled here today. Uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, this ministry that you've given us the privilege to be a part of. I thank you for the great honor and privilege that you've given me to proclaim the Word of God, Bible doctrine, to your people uh, that you purchased with the blood of your son at Calvary 2,000 years ago. We just thank you, Father, for the freedoms that we have in this country. We thank you for our leaders. We pray, Father, that you would give our military and political leaders the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country, influence them, bring in godly people to influence them with establishment principles or believers like the great Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that influence policy just by their godly uh, wisdom and behavior. And we just uh, thank you, Father, for uh, the people who not only defend our freedoms outside, uh, from the enemy without our, outside our borders, but also uh, various paramilitary organizations like the police that protect us from the enemy within. And so we pray, Father, for them and their families and their encouragement and that you would provide for them everything that they need logistically to do their jobs. I also thank you, Father, for the great uh, blessings that you've given to us because we're in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, through the baptism of the Spirit. We just thank you, Father, for the victory that you've given to us through that union identification with your son over sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. We know that our great enemies are not the, uh, not the liberals, not the conservatives, not the independents, it's not the, the homosexuals, it's not the, uh, the, the, the whole uh, woke movement. It's all about Satan and his kingdom that's deceiving this entire world and also the indwelling sin nature. And we know that we've been delivered from that. And so we pray that humbly that we can continue to grow uh, in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for this congregation and all of us. We continue to grow in love toward you and each other and uh, an experiential knowledge of the truth and personally encountering you through the uh, process of fellowship. I thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of our sins. And we just thank you for this day to study your word in this series on Habakkuk. And I pray it would be a great blessing to you people and give us encouragement. And we know we're going to be a part of what's going to be taking place at the second advent when you establish the kingdom of God here on earth. So, Father, I pray today that you would help uh, myself as, your, as the communicator here to, to deliver the full counsel, your full counsel, by the power of the Spirit. Help me to communicate it with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. And I also pray that you would use your people mightily, help them to learn by the Spirit and understand it and make careful uh, concentration upon the Word of God and careful application through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I pray he would do a mighty work through both myself and your children in the audience. And we just, as a result, would uh, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, and continue on to spiritual maturity, become like your Son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action. And we just thank you for not only the blessings of our uh, justification, but also the blessings that we're going to have in the future, in the imminent future, when we receive a resurrection body uh, and, uh, and rewards for faithful service. So help us to keep persevering and living our lives in light of the imminency of our death or the rapture, which could happen at any moment as well. So, Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Please go to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, if you haven't gone there already. We're going to read the whole chapter so that we can study our passage in the first session, which is, as I said earlier before the opening prayer, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 4. And we always study a passage in context. Be wary of teachers 
who, uh, I don't care how popular they are, they need to pay attention, be expository. That means you go through the different books of the Bible, uh, uh, alternate between Old Testament and New Testament, and you do the various doctrines of the Christian faith, and many churches are not doing that anymore, and many of the, the, the teachers out there that are very popular are not doing that, and one of the things that they do, false teachers do, is that they take a verse and they take it out of its context. So that's why we study the whole chapter, and we want to see what's preceded it, the verse that we're studying, and also what's coming after it. And that's paying attention to context. Now, uh, for those who uh, might be coming new to the study, and of course these, are, these lessons are broadcast uh, throughout the world through the various podcasts and the, and the websites that we have, so there's always some people new coming into these series. So for those who are new here and those who on the online or these podcasts, the book of Habakkuk is dialogue between uh, the, the prophet Habakkuk, who we believe was a Levitical priest and a musician. And uh, he served in, in Solomon's temple. And it's a conversation between him and God. And he starts off in the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1, as we saw, that uh, complaining to God about the apostasy in his own nation. What are you going to do about it, God? Well, God was upset with it too, just like Habakkuk. And God, the Holy Spirit, was pushing Habakkuk to intercede in prayer to the Father about this. And so God comes back to him, as we saw in detail, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, saying, I'm going to bring in the Babylonians... Uh, to, uh, to discipline your people. And so Habakkuk comes back and responds to God in verses 12 to 15 of that, uh, 12 to uh, 17 of that chapter by saying, I don't like the choice. <laughs> he was upset because the Babylonians were pagans and God, uh, Habakkuk was like, you're going to use this pagan group of people who are butchers who are just emerging on the world scene. They had just beaten Egypt at Carchemish, which would be the Lebanon era today. And they were, about, they were uh, ready uh, to have, there was an, uh, an invasion was imminent of the Mediterranean region of the world. So uh, God uh, br was bringing in Habakkuk, not only to uh, discipline the southern kingdom of Judah, but also to destroy those who were involved in unrepentant pagan idolatry in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. Well, chapter 2 is a lot better for Habakkuk because God comes back and says, uh, and uh, Jeremiah 51 echoes this, I, God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to use, I'm, I'm going to be another nation, another co coalition of nations to discipline or defeat and destroy Babylon. History tells us it was the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel predicted this, a contemporary of Habakkuk in Daniel chapter chapter 2, and also Daniel chapter uh, 7, he talks about this. So the Medo-Persian Empire, as we saw in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel was a part of that. He was there the night they killed Belshazzar, and this was fulfilled, this prophecy of the back of chapter 2 was fulfilled literally in history, and Daniel was there the day it was, uh, came to pass. And so then we get to chapter 3, and we have Habakkuk, uh, going out and uh, having this great revelation of what it looks appears to be the, uh, the, 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 the tribulation period and the second advent of Christ, which ends Daniel's 70th week. And uh, it's also alluding to different uh, Old Testament acts by God, especially the Exodus generation, where God delivered the Exodus generation from uh, the bondage to slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. So we have the divine warrior psalm, which precedes a great expression of faith by Habakkuk in, in the final uh, verses of the book. 
And so this divine warrior psalm is again speaking of the tribulation period. Now for those who might not understand what that is, uh, chronologically, and uh, what we're looking forward to is the rapture is next, it ends the church age, that's when the church gets its resurrection bodies. And then that triggers uh, the, the appearance of Antichrist. We'll be studying this in our Day of the Lord series, which is on Wednesday nights. We've already started that. So Daniel's 70th week can't start, the tribulation period can't start until the church has been removed at the rapture. Paul makes this clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and also he says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 1, 10, that the church is delivered from the wrath to come. And that's the wrath of the Lamb that's talked about in Revelation chapters 6 through 18 with the seven seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, all of which we're going to go through when we do this Day of the Lord series. And so uh, these, that period, the 70th week of Daniel, begins with Antichrist making a treaty with the, uh, the, the nation of Israel. And that's uh, predicted in Daniel 9.27. And so it's broken up. It's a seven-year period. And when you take, talk about the 70th week of Daniel in that prophecy in which that verse is found, the 70 weeks prophecy, 70 weeks in that passage as we looked at in detail is 490 prophetic years, uh, 483 of which, 69, that's equivalent to 69 weeks, have been fulfilled literally in history and verses 24 and 25. But you get to verse 26, that verse in Daniel 9, 26 has literally been fulfilled in history with the crucifixion of Jesus and the destruction of the temple, uh, Herod's temple in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem fulfilled in 70 AD by the Romans destroying uh, the, the, the nation of Israel. And so now we're just waiting for the 70th week which can't happen until we, the church, are removed. And as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the Holy Spirit who indwells the church, uh, he lo he's localized in the body of believers, the church. Once he's removed with us at the rapture, then we see the, that Antichrist can manifest himself. And that 70th week is broken out, seven years, it's broken out into two, three and a half year sections. The first three and a half years is like a cold war. Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, so does Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Uh, there'll be uh, wars and rumors of war, but there's actually be a lot of peaceful, uh, it'd be like a, a cold war, but there is, is peace established somewhat by the Antichrist. And so the world will be taken by surprise when Antichrist, in the middle of the 70th week, the middle of this seven-year period, he declares himself as God. Daniel 9.27 says there are two abominations, it's plural. The first one, uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, and Revelation 13 does as well. It's uh, the false prophet creates an image of the Antichrist, and he makes it come to life. And this causes the world, he wants the world to worship this image of the Antichrist. The other one, Paul mentions about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, and he talks about the Antichrist sitting down in the rebuilt Jewish temple on the Ark of the Covenant. And he's basically aping God, imitating God by doing that, because that's how God spoke with Moses in the Exodus generation, particularly Moses and in the book of Exodus. So those are the two abominations. And when Jesus said, when you see the image standing, that is when the people, the Jewish people, must leave the land. And Zechariah says only a small remnant of Jewish freedom fighters will stay in the city, holding off Antichrist until Christ comes back in the second advent. So the church is delivered from all this period. And it's the worst time in all of history. The whole earth will be devastated. The, the population of the earth, earth will probably be devastated at least 90, over 90% of the population. The world's population will be gone through these judgments. And so this is, uh, many people will get saved during this time, and many people, of course, will not. And so when Christ comes back at a second advent, Revelation 19 says he's coming back with the church. 
And so uh, the church is coming back with Jesus, and you also have the elect angels, and you have the tribulational martyrs and resurrection bodies, and Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel, they're in resurrection bodies with us as we come back to start the kingdom. So this is going to be a spectacular day, the second advent, which we're going to be talking about today in these two lessons. So we're back, with that brief review out of the way, look at it back at chapter 3, verse 1. On the board, you can read it if you don't have your Bible. Habakkuk 3, one we're reading from the NIV. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shagayanah. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now we have the beginning of this divine warrior psalm, which is primarily prophetic. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, and those particular locations are in a place what we call known today as the Kingdom of Jordan, and which is uh, those there's three nations in that area the Bible talks about that will be in existence during the times of the Antichrist and the Second Advent of Christ. So God came from Teman, and speaking of Jesus, we compare that with Isaiah 63. He'll have blood on his garments, Jesus will, for the destruction of his enemies. The Holy One from Mount Paran, speaking of Jesus, Salah, or Selah. In the Hebrew, it's Selah. And so it says in the rest of the verse, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise and rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. That's quite interesting. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth and he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress and the dwellings of Midian and anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you, did you rage against the sea when you rode with ho- your horses and your victorious chariots? You covered your bow. You called for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in rides. Torrents of water swept by and the deep roared and lifted its ways on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah, that's speaking as, we, as we'll see, and I've been pointing it out, that is him killing the Antichrist. Then he has in verse 14, the same, talking about the same event, with his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, the Jews at the time, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the seed with your horses, churning the great waters. And that's the end of the divine warrior psalm. And now Habakkuk expresses his faith, which I can't wait to get to this as well, because this is really cool. This is faith. It's easy to praise God and follow God and uh, worship God when things are going good in your life. But he's talking about he's ready for the Babylonian invasion, which is going to destroy his nation and be deported for 70 years, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Yeah, it's easy to praise Jesus when things are going good, when you get money in the bank account, but when you don't have anything, when your whole country's devastated, where your whole uh, society of Jewish society has been up, uh, uh, blown up, come on. That, that takes faith to say what he's going to say here. Look at what he says in verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled because of that uh, song, uh, the vision he got. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity when the Babylonians come to destroy his people, to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig trees does, the fig tree does not bud. Remember, they're an agricultural economy. It'll be devastated 
their economy, agricultural economy, when, with the Babylonian invasions, and there were three, 605, 597, and 586 BC. So though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, and though the olive oil crop fails, and the fields produce no food, uh, we would say as we go down to Star Market and there's no steaks and there's no food, or Publix, that's what he's talking about. Nothing's there anymore. So then it says, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will I'll be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go on the heights. And then he says, and this is how we know he's a magician, a mu not a magician, musician, and he's also, of course, uh, he's, uh, uh, he writes songs. And that's when he says, we know this from this, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Now let me give you my translation of verses uh, three through uh, four. It says, God will travel from Teman, then the Holy One will travel from Mount Paran, Selah. His majesty will cover the heavens so that his praise will certainly fill the earth. And that will happen at his second advent and millennial reign. In fact, verse 4, his splendor will be like lightning. Flashing rays of light will come from his hand on his behalf. Indeed, there it covers his strength. Now, let me give you a, a, on the board a map that I, I presented to you when we did verses, verse 3. Now, we see this is a map of the, the Middle East. And let me get my pen going here. So... When he talks about Teman, it's down here, down this, this, this section here. And then up here, we have the Mount of Olives, all right? Now, Teman, and this is in, the, in, a, in a country called the Kingdom of Jordan today. You got Basra. If we look at Isaiah 63, it says he comes from Basra, Basra the Lord will, with blood on his garments. And they ask him, where did you get the blood from? He goes, my enemies. And so Basra's here, and you've got Mount Paran here. So this is what we would call today, uh, back in the ancient world, Edom. And Edom uh, is, is, appears in the, during the tribulation period. We know that from the book of Daniel. And we see that the kingdom of Jordan, what we know knows the kingdom of Jordan, these three nations, Moab and Edom, they're all going to resist the Antichrist, and he won't be able to overcome them which is quite interesting. So there is pushback against the Antichrist. A lot of people don't realize that. So what I believe what, you, what we're seeing is here's the tracking the movements of the Lord at his second advent. A lot of people think he's going to just, uh, he could be he could he'd do a couple of things. He could land on the Mount of Olives and then come all the way down here and, 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 uh, and, and, and do what he's going to do here in, in the kingdom of Jordan. Or he could be landing over here, killing his, destroying his enemies, and then marching. Uh, or, or we probably flying over with his own omnipotence and orbiting Jerusalem because he lands on the, on the Mount of Olives and it, just, it causes a massive earthquake we've never seen before the likes, the likes of before. So these are the movements of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent. Remember, he comes back with us orbiting the earth. Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. And then he comes in here. So he goes here. So he could do two, one or two things. I'm not really sure. He could be starting here down in uh, what we call today uh, uh, Kingdom of Jordan, Edom, or he could be uh, starting here at the Mount of Olives and then marching down. I'm, not, I'm really not sure. Maybe as time goes on, I'll be able to figure it out. But that's what we have to track in the movements of the Lord. So this is the second advent of Christ we're talking about. And here's the thing. I wanted to make sure that you know the distinctions 
between the second advent. This is from my article on uh, the rapture of the church. It's on our website, and it's be prepared. It's a long article. I think it's over 200 pages or something like that. So it, uh, when we talk about the, the rapture in the second advent, here's some of the distinctions. For example, the rapture precedes the tribulation, whereas the second advent follows it, as indicated by the chronology presented in the book of Revelation. The rapture delivers the church from the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are waiting for the Son from heaven to whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, our deliverer, from the covering wrath, the wrath of the tribulation period. While the second advent, or actually 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God did not destine us, the church, for wrath, experiencing the wrath of God during the tribulation period, but for gaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, our salvation is going to be completed at that particular time. We are saved in a positional sense. We experience that salvation uh, when we are in fellowship with God, and our salvation will be completed when we're in a resurrection body. We'll be completely and perfectly delivered from sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. And uh, eternal condemnation, all those things are, are talking about our salvation. So we also see that Antichrist, uh, we see that Jesus Christ will uh, not judge the inhabitants of the earth at the rapture, while he will do so at his second advent. <coughs> And so uh, Matthew 25 is all about that. Uh, the Jew, Ezekiel 20 is also about, I can tell you right now, the chronology of the judgment. In Ezekiel 20, Jesus goes to the Jews out in the wilderness and he, and he, he judges them. Uh, we have the unregenerate Jews are removed from the face of the earth by the elect angels. And, but the difference now from the first advent of Christ is the majority of Jews at the second advent are going to believe in Jesus. We call this the national regeneration of the Jews. Uh, the, the dry bones passage of Ezekiel 37, when, he, when they receive eternal life through faith in Jesus, when he comes back at the second advent, then we see that that, is, that prophecy has been fulfilled. So we just have things being prepared right now. So we also see that he, uh, that he goes to the Gentiles after the Jews, and he removes all, through the elect angels, he removes all the sheep and goats passage of Matthew 25. He removes all the unsaved Gentiles from the face of the earth. And we have only believers starting the, the millennial reign on the earth. Here's interesting. When the rapture happens, for the first time in history, there'll not be a believer on the earth. When we're gone, they'll get saved. People, the Jews and Gentiles will read their Bibles, things that we left behind, right? And they'll get saved because the Holy Spirit, who is omnipresent, though he's not localizing the body of believers at when we leave, he's still around. He's omnipresent, okay? So he's going to, through the scriptures, he's going to uh, help them understand their need for Jesus, and they're going to accept the gospel message through the power of the Spirit, just like we did. And so uh, that's quite thrilling, okay? But we see that the millennial reign, it starts off with only believers. And the offspring, the people who survive the events of the tribulation period and the, and the, and the second advent of Christ, and there'll be a small group of people, and the world's population is decimated, they will have children and they'll repopulate the earth. Boy, that's a tough job. They're going to have a lot of fun, be fruitful and multiply, and they'll fill the earth. Well, a thousand years later, Satan's released from prison, as part of his appeal trial, and he will start another rebellion with the descendants of these people. Imagine that. They had a perfect environment, Jesus, perfect government, no crime, no war, and yet they rebel against Jesus anyways when given an opportunity, which tells you and tells us that your, your circumstances, your environment, is no excuse. 
We're all sinners by nature and practice, whether we're in a good environment, a wealthy environment, or we're in poverty. We're volitionally responsible. You can't blame your environment. And that's contrary to the culture, because the gospel will, it will contradict your cultural ideas, whether you're in America or Europe or you're in, in Africa or wherever you are. The Bible will always do that to you. It does it to us, and it does it to everybody around the world and their cultural ideas, which are against the Bible and are actually influenced in the creation of Satan and his kingdom. Now, the rapture is also a time of joy, Titus 2.13, whereas the second of Advent will be a time of mourning. Zechariah 12.10-14 teaches us that, and Revelation 1.7 as well. The rapture takes place before the day of wrath or the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5.1-11, and also the second Advent, on the other hand, ends the day of the Lord, Matthew 24, 29 through 36. The rapture is only seen by the church and therefore is invisible to the world, uh, while the second advent is the visible manifestation of Christ on earth. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1, 7. So the Lord also meets the church in the, in the earth's atmosphere at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, whereas the Lord physically lands on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem at a second advent, Zechariah 14, 4, and so this is just a few of the distinctions between the second advent and the, uh, the uh, uh, rapture of the church. So as we noted, as we noted in our study of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, uh, we see that Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 20 is a prayer which uh, the prophet Habakkuk offered up to the God of Israel, which he directed to be sung in the temple as part of the worship of the God of Israel. Uh, remember, the Jewish people were a, a singing people. Uh, the church was a, 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 music was a big part of the church. In fact, uh, when we do Colossians, Colossians 3.16 is actually speaking of teaching the word of God through music. So that's why when Bert does a, 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 a song for us and uh, with, the, with the ladies accompanying him on piano when he's doing a cappella on Wednesdays, he always likes to take lyrics that are doctrinal and he'll talk about them sometimes, which is very good. So the doctrine that is in the lyrics is actually very instructive. And, uh, and so that's why when I write my songs, I'm very conscious about my lyrics being very doctrinal and uh, being fo following the scriptures. And because I'm not here to be entertaining, and neither is Bert. Uh, when we're in church, we're here to minister to people the word of God. Now, we might have a, a thing outside uh, the, the, the church uh, worship service where, you know, it's entertaining and there's nothing wrong with that. I do gigs outside of church and done that in the past. And I'm a it's a different person that, you, that you're seeing there than you will see uh, you know, uh, here. Uh, I mean, trust me, I'm not doing the Mick Jagger, you know, stuff. You know, I'm not doing that stuff. Uh, but uh, or Jimi Hendrix. But uh, again, I'm not. I'm not doing what I'm doing here. I'm not here to put on a show for you. In other words, with music. So we also noted in verse three that Habakkuk chapter three, verses three through fifteen, is prophetic, referring to the events of the seventieth week in the second advent of Christ, but also alluding to the mighty acts of God which He performed on behalf of Israel. Uh, back in the past, like the Exodus generation, as I pointed out to you before. Now, we come to Habakkuk 3.4 today, which contains two more prophetic statements and a third statement which explains for the reader, you and I, or identifies for us, these two, these two prophetic statements. Now, all three statements, people, are describing the Lord Jesus Christ and his actions when he returns to planet Earth at his second advent. You know, you hear the story, you hear the thing, the expression, pie in the sky. That, the Christians, they pie in the sky. Is Jesus coming back. In fact, we studied it when we did Jude. Second Peter was a chapter two or three. It says the, the people are mocking the fact that Christians are waiting for Jesus to come back. 
You get that all the time. They call it pie in the sky. Guess what? They'll be eating some pie or they'll be eating some crow or whatever at that time. They won't be laughing at Jesus and they won't be laughing at us. In fact, we're coming back with Jesus and resurrection bodies and decorated with rewards for faithful service. So we're, as it says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So we'll have the last laugh and Jesus will have the last laugh. So I always say to people, you know, they're not believers. You know, there was this Jewish man I knew, and I was a, worked at a, uh, an NEC dealer in New England. I was an office manager there and stuff. And, you know, I never really broadcast my Christianity, but my boss knew I was a Christian, and he knew I was going to Bob's church where I go to day, like, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday morning, evening, morning, I did the prep school there. Like that, and I was a nut. I was an occult or something. I said, come on. Come, into, come to the church and you'll see if we're a cult or not. I mean, we're only sacrificing cows to uh, the pastor and everything and doing all kinds of stuff. You know? So just to you know, get a delight, give some levity to the thing. And he came and he showed me, yeah, it's not bad, it's all right. So he, he realized that we weren't a cult, okay? So, so, he, you know, so this guy, who was one of these salespeople, he was a Jewish man, and I, I don't know how the conversation got started. Because I wasn't sitting there on the top of my desk going, you know, uh, shaking the Bible and throwing the Bible at people. You know, he said about, uh, so I said, well, what do you think, what, what, so you think uh, when, when you die, what happens? He goes, I just don't, don't exist. I said, oh, okay. And, uh, and so I said, well, you know, as I, you've heard me talk about what the Bible teaches, I give the passage, but, you know, when we die, as a believer, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Okay, so and then you know we uh, so now for, for an unbeliever, my Bible says that if you reject Jesus as Savior, okay, you are going to have to face Him in judgment at the Great White Throne, and then you have to spend all of eternity in the Lake of Fire, you know, eternal condemnation. Okay, now Jesus, I said, suffered the, the wrath of God on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to go through that. And I said, I'm not better than you, and you're not not better than me. We're both guilty before God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So I said to him, I said, okay, so if you're right, the worst that happens to me is I don't exist. But if I'm right, and I just left it like that and looked at him, what I say is if you're sitting on the fence, you've already made a decision not to. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Is it going to change your life? Well, just look around you. Do we look like we're, you know, a miserable people and we don't, you know? I mean, none of us is perfect. In fact, you, you come to our church, and you're a nut, guess what? You fit right in. We got a bunch of nuts in this church, and the pastor is the head of the nuts, okay? So, now, yes, you're, yes, you are nuts, okay? Just look at the front row, right, this guy over here, okay? Just think, he's a testament to the grace of God, okay? Just like I am. God can change your life if you're a nut, okay? So what are you afraid of? It's not costing you anything, and who wouldn't want to serve a God that loves me so much that he was willing to become a human being and suffer his wrath on the cross so that I wouldn't have to suffer for all of eternity? Are you kidding me? And then give rewards for faithful service? Once I'm his child? That's the kind of God I want to worship. You know, all the gods people worship today, idols, they're Satan's creation. They don't know what they see by the world just like I was and you were prior to becoming Christians. Your idols will always disappoint you. When I grew up, my idols were, you know, the Beatles. They broke up. They broke my heart. They broke my heart. Yoko, I don't care. She messed up John, okay? And I'm blaming her. Tom Brady, Giselle messed up him too. Just like in, in the Garden of Eden, man. I'm kidding, okay, girls? Don't get all tight. So I could see, I could see Sarah over there. I'm ready to get you, Bill, you know? I wouldn't mess with Sarah. 
But no, I just, the world is, 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 has all kinds of idols, whether it's athletes, entertainers, you know, and I, and, you know, I, I came from the same background, politicians, you know, it's like when, uh, when people like JFK and Robert F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King had died, okay? Well, a lot of people, they were like idols to them. People worshiped these people like idols because when they died, it was like, oh, it's the end of the world. No, they were just human beings. They were here, did whatever God had them to do, and they're gone. You know, somebody else is going to come on, and then they're going to die. And at the end of the day, there's only one person that's died and then came back from the dead, Jesus, and we have eyewitnesses testimony about that. That's what the testimony of the Gospels is. We saw him. You know, we don't believe in fables either. People in the ancient world were just like us. They didn't, they were scientific too, but not, you know, we think that we were so much smarter than those people. Read the Gospels. Read them. And so, they saw them. How can you account for the great apostle Paul, who was the arch enemy of the church and had Christians put to death and held the cloaks of those who killed Stephen? All of a sudden, he's going the other way. He had everything to lose. He was the top celebrity in Judaism. And then he lost everything. Because he followed Jesus, he was, dis he was disowned by the Jewish people and they wanted to kill him. The same people that he was working for to kill Jesus and the other, and the other disciples of Jesus. How do you account for that? Here's a better one. How can you account for us on a Sunday morning, New Year's Eve, where the rest of the world is gearing up to get Taiwan on tonight? Okay? Here we are worshiping Jesus. We live our lives. We try to live our lives. We're not perfect. We're not perfect, perfected yet. We strive for perfection, but we know that's not going to come until we get our resurrection bodies. So we need to understand something that trust in Jesus as your Savior, it's not how much faith you have, it's who you have your faith in, and the merits of the object of your faith, Jesus, will save you. And many of us, well, pretty much everybody in the room has pretty much done that. Now, we see that all three statements in the back of 3-4, again, are describing the Lord Jesus Christ and his actions when he returns to planet Earth at his second advent. Now, the first prophetic statement in verse 4, as we read, asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ's splendor will be like lightning, and this, this statement is actually advancing upon and intensifying the third and fourth prophetic statements in verse 3. Now, the third prophetic statement, as we read, asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ's majesty will cover the heavens, and the fourth presents the result of the third and asserts that his praise will certainly fill the earth. Therefore, a comparison of these statements, as we pointed out, indicates that the advancement and the intensification with regards to the Lord manifesting his presence is, is, is actually with regards to the Lord manifesting his presence at his second advent. So this indicates for us that not only will the Lord's majesty cover the heavens so that his praise fills the earth, as we saw in verse 3, but this manifestation of his presence will be as bright as lightning. Or in other words, it will be as bright as lightning when it flashes across the earth's atmosphere. So the first prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3, 4, echoes... Our Lord's description of his second advent in what we call the Olivet Discourse at Matthew 24, where he compared his appearance at his second advent to lightning flashing across the sky. So hold your place, go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Matthew 24, verse 1. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Great chapter. This is all about uh, the Jews. The church is not in view. 
They asked him, his disciples, the church was, uh, was briefly talked about by Jesus and Matthew 16. Upon this rock, uh, uh, Peter, I will build my church. Speaking of himself, the rock, not like the Catholics where they say it's, it's the uh, Peter. So they're asking him when he's going to come back to start the kingdom, okay? So this is the Jew, the, his Jewish disciples asking this. The church doesn't get talked about until the night he's in detail in John 13 through 17 is his upper room discourse, where it's just him and his disciples, and it's the night Judas betrays him, and he gets arrested, okay? That's the first time he really starts talking about the church, and he talks about the rapture in John 14, 1 through 3. So, Matthew 24 is speaking of the, of the Jews, and it speaks a lot about the tribulation period and the second advent. It's a great passage. So, Matthew 24, 1 says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings, speaking of Herod's temple. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And the, Jew, the Romans did that in 70 AD. Okay? As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, now look what they say. This clues you in to what he's going to talk about now, because what's the question? The disciples came to him privately and tell us, they said, when will this happen? When this destruction will take place? He's going to talk about this, and then he's going to go further. So he says, when will this happen? They said to him, and what will be the sign of your coming? Or in the end of the age. So the Jews and Jesus' day and his disciples were no different. They were looking, and this is the whole prophetic expectation of the Old Testament. Even today, Orthodox Jews are looking for it too. Okay? There's Reformed Jews that are like the guy, I, I, uh, the Jewish man I... I uh, worked with years ago. They're reformed Jews. Not every Jew is, and so there's Jews that are atheistic, too. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, like Roman Catholics in a way, too. It's kind of interesting. So we see that Jesus answers this. That what he says, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. See, when you're standing in the holy place. Now, he, it's interesting. If you want to know this, this passage, you got to know the prophecy of Daniel, the 70 weeks prophecy. Because he's going basically on, 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 on Daniel 9.27 here. Okay? He, said, he mentions Daniel 7, 20, uh, 9, uh, 9, 27, right here in this passage, right here, verse 15. See, when you see, see standing in the holy place, now the temple uh, is going to be destroyed in 70 AD, but it's going to be rebuilt again, and we'll, they have the plans, they have the sacrifice, everything. You can go on websites, and there's, it, there's no, it's nothing. The cornerstone, they have it. I think it was busted, and they got a new one. But this is all pretty common knowledge that the Orthodox Jews are ready to go for the Messiah and rebuild this temple. I believe Antichrist is going to be the guy who's going to fake him out. He makes a treaty with Israel. They think he's the real Messiah. 
probably will solve this Arab-Israeli conflict, and they'll be able to build the temple. The Arabs will be happy. The Muslims will be happy. Everything will be peaceful, okay? So he, remember, he's going to be tremendously charismatic, the Antichrist. He's going to be a Gentile. He's going to be a Roman. That's what the passage in Daniel 9, 26 and 27 says. So when you see standing in the holy place, that false prophet having the, uh, the image of the Antichrist in the temple, Revelation 13 talks about this. When you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel 9.27, let the reader understand. Now, he's going to be talking to the people that lived during that time, the Jews of that time. He's going to be talking about them now, to them now. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of, the, of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. These are for the Jews living in that period when the Antichrist does this. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. And this verse tells you that's definitely talking about the Jews of G, uh, during the tribulation period. Because he says, pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on a Sabbath. The church doesn't care about the Sabbath. We're not to worship, the, uh, worship on the Sabbath. We worship on the first day of week. Not Saturday, Sunday we do it. For then, we're not seven-day Adventists, okay? For then there will be a great distress, unequaled, from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. The world thinks the pandemic of 2021, whatever it was, 19, was a big deal. Oh, man, you think World War II was a bad deal? World War I, the Civil War, this is going to be the war to end all wars, truly. They thought World War I was. Uh-uh. The Armageddon campaign goes for three and a half years. 1,260 days according to the Jewish reckoning of time, which was a 360-day calendar. We're not going to be around. We're with Jesus. We're not, he's not a wife beater, by the way. We're the bride of Christ, right? So, if those days had not been cut short, meaning if the Father didn't send them back when he does, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Remember, at that time, during the tribulation period, there he is. Do not believe it, he says. For false Christs and prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. Not only is this the time of wrath Christ pours out on the world with a seven-sealed trumpet of bold judgments, but remember, Revelation 12, the devil and his angels are thrown out of heaven by Michael and his elect angels. So you get the wrath of Satan, the wrath of the Lord, the Lamb poured out upon the world. This is crisis evangelism will take place. The greatest evangelism period of all time. Not only the Jews, the majority of Jews will get saved, but the majority, a lot of Gentiles will. But you'll have to die for your faith because Antichrist will behead you. Okay? So, verse 26. This is uh, Habakkuk 3.4 alludes to it. Verses 26 and tw uh, verse 27 it does. So if anyone tells you, there is the Messiah. He's out in the desert. Do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man will be. Son of Man, very important. The Jews knew, Jesus used this for himself as a title more than any other title. The Son of Man is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, 13 and 14, who went up to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom. That's happened in history. When Christ was crucified, raised from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven on the, at 40 days, after the 40 days he spent after his resurrection, just teaching his disciples and giving them infallible proofs that he had been raised from the dead. He seated the right hand of the Father on the day, on the day of Pentecost. Okay, he sends this baptism of the Spirit. 
10 days later. But when he sits down, that fulfills Daniel 7, 13, 14. He seated with the, the, before the Ancient of Days at his right hand. That's the Father. Okay? And, and you and I are in union with Christ. Paul says that you've been raised and seated with Christ. Despite the fact that you're dead in your sins and transgressions, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, he made you alive with Christ through faith in Christ and the baptism of the Spirit, and he placed you in union with Christ, which means when Christ died and was raised from the dead, so were you and I. And when he was seated at the right hand of the Father, so were you and I. And this is going to, the reason why God's doing this is because he wants to restore mankind as the rulers of this earth. The fall disrupted that. And Christ is the last Adam, and we're his bride. So what God's plan was for the, for the mankind to rule over the works of his hands will be fulfilled, will be back on track again with the church and Jesus. Okay? Right now, Satan is the god of this world. Don't blame God for the mess this world's in. Satan is the god of this world. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, he deceives the entire world, Revelation 12, and the whole world is under his power. First John, 1 John 5.19. He's not a little guy, cute little guy in a, in a jumpsuit, red jumpsuit with a little tail and pitchfork. He's the most beautiful man to come from the hands of God. A beautiful angel come from the hand of God. Nobody's ever seen anything like him. He was the anointed cherub, Ezekiel 28. He walked through the doors here. Remember this guy got all upset when I told this to him in church one time. Even your wives would go, go crazy over the guy. I said, this guy was, he had problems. Anyways, I, I'm trying to make a point here, dude. If the lady saw him, they would go wild. Bad Brad Pitt, Elvis in his prime, no. My husband in his prime, no. This, wow. And the guys, wow. They, you would be absolutely blown away if you could see him. And by the way, we, the church, are going to see him, by the way. We're going to see who this guy was, who was, who was, this angel who was causing us all kinds of problems. Quite fascinating here. So as lightning comes from the east, is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I told you this when I was in Iowa for 18 years. When I, you know, living in Massachusetts prior to that, you know, there's like, you know, Alabama, there's all these trees and there's hills and all the mountains. So I never saw, the, you know, a storm come up like I saw in Iowa. When I first there, I was in this little farmhouse, as I told you, they put me in, and I saw the squall line with a big storm coming up. Now in Iowa, it's just flat, as far as the eye could see, corn and soybean, and I saw that, that storm coming up, and I was like, Wow. And then it comes in. Unbelievable. It was like, Christ died on the cross. It was like dark. And the clouds were so low. It was like, wow. And then at night, we had a huge electrical storm. All night, it lightning would flash from one end of the sky to the other. I could see both horizons. And I thought about this passage. Everybody will see Jesus come back. There'll be no surprise. Here he is. And that's what he's saying. Don't, be telling, don't listen to anybody telling you that he's in the desert. No. When I come back to start the kingdom, you're all going to know I'm here. I'm going to light the place up. He will light the place up. There it is, people. So it says, uh, he says, uh, as far as lighting that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, go back to Habakkuk 3.4. So as we saw in Habakkuk 3.4, it says his splendor was like the sunrise. Uh, so uh, the, um, let's give, I'll give you another translation too, some other translations here. Look at uh, the Net Bible. They got a good one. While you're going back to Habakkuk, it says, He is bright as lightning, the Net Bible says. And what did my translation have? Uh, we had, I'll go back hit to it. It says, 
In fact, his splendor will be like lightning, okay? That is why we went to Matthew 24, 27. His splendor will be like lightning. Now, the second prophetic statement that we have in, uh, in Habakkuk 3, 4, okay? So look at Habakkuk 3, 4 in your Bibles. And it says, let me get back to the NIV. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. That's an interesting statement. What is he saying there? Well, this second prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3, 4, as we read in my translation, the Net Bible, the NIV, all uh, the Net Bible, the NIV, top translations, they're asserting that flashing rays of light will come from the Lord Jesus Christ's hand on his behalf, as I put in my translation, because they will result in the destruction of his enemies. That's why it'll benefit him. This third and final statement in Habakkuk 3, 4 asserts that the Lord's hand covers his strength. It's advancing upon and intensifying that second prophetic statement and that it advances upon and it intensifies the use of the Lord's hand. In other words, not only will flashing rays of light proceed from his hand on his behalf, but also his hand covers his strength, his omnipotence. Many times you see in scripture, the right hand speaks of power. Now, Jesus is coming back, his hand, as you see this, uh, this slide on this board, my point on the board, his hand covers his strength in the sense that these flashing rays of light, which will issue forth from Jesus Christ at his second advent against his enemies, are a small manifestation of his infinite power or omnipotence. In other words, people, his hand localizes his omnipotence, which is infinitely greater than these flashing rays of light, which will issue forth from his hand against his enemies at his second advent. Uh, old Palmer Robinson, a, uh, an excellent commentator on Habakkuk, he says, this power, quoting, he says, I'm quoting from him, this power, this glory must be hidden. That's what he says. This power of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, his omnipotence, must be, uh, his power, this glory must be hidden because of the limitations of finite human beings. Just as one cannot stare directly into the brilliance of the sun, observing only with caution the shining of its glory, so also the glory and power of God must be veiled. Doesn't it say in 1 Timothy 6.16, he says, for he dwells in light unapproachable. Uh, J.E. Smith says something similar. He says, the, another commentator in Habakkuk, he says, the visible rays of light streaming from God's hand were only a shield for the invisible and awesome power of the coming one. The human eye cannot even stare directly into the brilliant light of the sun. Yet it is this light which shields the glory and power of God. No wonder then that it must be veiled from human sight. Paul later would declare that the God of the Bible dwells in unapproachable light. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. You and I are the beneficiaries of divine omnipotence. As a believer, you're indwelt by the Trinity. Jesus, 1, Colossians 1, 27. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 11. The Father, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And there are other passages. Each member of the Trinity is in you. You have divine omnipotence in you. You have the divine nature in you. You're in union with Christ. You're seated at the right hand of God. Your prayers are effective. You have unlimited power at your disposal. It's a lifestyle of power and wisdom, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. 
that same God that's going to manifest a little bitty portion of his omnipotence in the second advent is in us. And his word, which is alive and powerful, Hebrews 4.12, that is the power to overcome all kinds of enemies and obstacles in your life. Whatever mountains you are facing, whatever mountain you are facing, whatever crisis in your life, financial, health-wise, whatever relationship problem, whatever it is, self-esteem issues, you're miserable, you're unhappy, whatever it is, God's power can overcome that. It could change your life. You have the power to overcome sin. We have it through our union and identification with Christ. We die with Christ, we're raised with Christ, and we've got the victory over Satan and his cosmic system and the indwelling sin nature. We don't have to be a miserable people, self-absorbed people who are all about themselves. We can live for, as, 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 for our Lord and Savior who loved us and, 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 and saved us through his great power which was manifested in his weakness at the cross. God's power, his weakness, was manifested through the death of Christ, his son, when he raised him from the dead. And that same power that was manifested in the life of our Lord is going to be manifested in our lives. We will be raised from the dead, just like Jesus. We will be lifted up like Jesus. If we remain faithful, we can get rewards on top of the resurrection body. We could have positions of authority in Christ's millennial government. But you have to utilize the power that God gave to you. So I said this many times before. People in the body of Christ, one of the great tragedies, and especially in America, is they don't experience the power of God in their lives. Instead, to solve their problems, okay, they're popping pills, smoking dope, Thinking money's going to solve my problem. Thinking, thinking if I just get a wife, I'll solve a problem. If I just have kids, it'll be a problem. I'll solve my problem. I, I, I just, I, I, there's searching, searching and searching when the answer is right there in them. And God's word, too. And yet, they, it's like having a Maserati, as I said. But yet, you're driving around in a Pinto. You got... You've got divine omnipotence at your disposal. You and I should always be rejoicing. Even when everything in our life is falling apart. What does Habakkuk say at the end of this book, right? We just read. We shouldn't be a complaining group of people. We should, why? Why? God's using these adversities in our life so he can manifest his power, glorify him. We talk about we want to glorify Jesus, but we don't want to suffer then you know you're not going to be great in the kingdom of God if you're not willing to suffer for his cause. You're just not. We can talk about how wonderful we are, but you know, the great saints all went through trials and tribulations and they manifested God's power in their, life, in their weakness. So whatever you're going through, you should be boasting in your weaknesses. You know? Why? Because in our weaknesses, he can manifest his great power. How are, you able to over, how are you able to have a great attitude even though things have fallen apart in your life? One of the things that, and I don't mean, to, I'm trying to embarrass him, I'm just saying, he's a great example. Pastor Peak, when his, when his wife, okay, was all going through all kinds of trials and tribulations with her health, and I remember going over his house one day and I just felt so bad for the guy. He's like, he's been married for 100 years to her and he thought he was going to lose her. But you know what he was saying? He was, his, you know, I didn't say, he said, I didn't, I didn't do anybody the what ifs, what's going to happen. That's the devil trying to get me 
occupied on something else and not really the issue. He says, if he takes her, he takes her. He was basically, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I'll still, I'll still follow the Lord. I love the Lord. And I, he was just so humble and so, it was like he was applying doctrine right there in, in my presence. And I was like, God, I love this guy. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm just trying to, he's a great, he's, you know, us pastors are supposed to be examples. So when we go through trials and tribulations and adversity, we're trying to show you the way, model it for you. You know, we're the, you're the flock, I'm the, we're the pastors. And that's very daunting, you know. That's why, I, so he carried, he went through that, and God's powers manifested in his weakness. There's nothing he could do. I mean, he loves this person. I can watch my father with my mother. It's like, you can't do anything for her. You try and you try. He's like, I can't do anything. He's, I'm going to lose her. And his faith in God's word appropriated the omnipotence of God. If I lose her, I'll still see her. I'll have a reunion. You know? And so I know God will come through. He doesn't let me down. And he trusted in him and he glorified God. In my eyes, he did. Glorify means he manifested God's power in his life. God's power took him over the circumstances that he was facing. You know? Or I see, I see when I see Bert, Bert well, he's got this, this thing with his, it, and you see him coughing, it's like, I don't know how he does it every day. It's God's power. Doctrine gets him through it. He's glorifying God in his suffering, in his weakness. You see? Those are the people you want to watch, okay? Who go through things. Because it's easy to sit there and God's, you know, working right in my name in my life. But how about when things are not going good? Okay? So God has limitless, infinite ability to do something. There's power in God's word. Just talk to people in the ministry and you know they've seen God's word in, his life, in their life. It's changed my life and it's changed all of your lives too. I know many of you talking to you. The cross of Christ is the power of God which delivers the believer from the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan and Satan himself. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. The life of the Lord was a life of power. He used the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to cast demons out of people. And the impeccable body of the human nature of Christ was conceived by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. He, had, he, he, was, raised from the, he was raised from the dead. Again, in weakness, he was dead, but he was raised from the dead. That same power is going to be, we're going to be experiencing it as well when we're raised from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise you and I from the dead. The same power that raised the humanity of Christ from the dead has been made available to every one of us in the church because of our union and identification with Jesus through the baptism of the Spirit. Thus the power, that because of the church age believers' union with Christ, they can have a lifestyle of power and wisdom. You don't have to be like the rest of the world that when things go bad, they want to jump off a bridge or commit suicide, which is an epidemic in our country. In the military as well, by the way, shockingly. I've read on it, talk to people. Got a big problem with that. So, church-age believers have been given divine power and made partakers of the divine nature. It is the power of God that works within believers when they apply the word of God, which is alive and powerful. Do you believe that? Give it a chance. Believe, take God's promises. Put it into practice, the things that we're learning. The application today, in this first message, is that same power that Jesus is going to exhibit 
a small, a small manifestation of it at a second advent is the same power that we already have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for everyone here. We pray the Spirit would do a mighty work in convicting and also encouraging, rebuking if necessary, instructing in righteousness so that we can go forward in your plan, manifesting your great power, your omnipotence in our lives as we appropriate by faith our union identification with Christ and consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God. We know we also look in anticipation when we get our resurrection bodies at the rapture which is imminent. Help us live our lives in light of the imminency of that great event. And we also thank you for the fact that you've given us the promise that we're the bride of Christ and we're going to come back with your son in the second advent, manifesting your power once again to a lost and dying world. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.